Hi, Charlotte Peter Gunitska. Uh, you are the chair of the OECD DAC. Uh, from your horizon, what are the trends affecting development cooperation today, and what are the challenges ahead that you can see? I see challenges in implementing the agreements that uh, the global community made 2015 and 2016. Uh, but I also want to take the point of departure from that from that time because we we have since three years back agreements that affects the development cooperation in a very positive way. We have the framework of the SDGs, we have the grand grand bargain agreement around the nexus of humanitarian and development uh, cooperation. Those are agreements that, when we work with them seriously, they really help us to deliver on on a new uh, way of cooperating for for global development. A trend is also that we're we're moving away from the old donor recipient uh, way of working. We see that every day. We 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 have African countries that are much more in the driver's seat. We have China. Uh, which we discuss and even debate whether China is the way they do development is the way we, the the, the Western part of the world, wants to see. Uh, they don't work according to our standards, so we debate that. But the fact is that they are very much uh, there. And we see a society engaging in development, not only uh, the civil society and governments, we see private sector really acting. Uh, we see philanthropy, we see, as I said, emerging countries or emerging economies and so on and so forth. So a global village that are in one way engaged trying to, to implement this. But the last two years has also been very much around, uh, especially the, the western part of the world, where populism uh, has uh, really influenced domestic politics. So the donor community, the traditional donor community that I am the chair of, the DAC, in many of our countries you do not uh, live up to agreements of ODA. The 0.7 is far from being reached. Security and self-interest are words that are much more on uh, in the debate than development cooperation. Sometimes it is as if we've forgotten 2015, uh, in my view. It's really not uh, high on the agenda for some of the donor countries. So, so what, we see, and what we see is also a scepticism, a criticism towards the multilateral system, UN and, and all of the things that we've... You know, the tools that we agreed on to use are now being very scrutinized and criticized and funds are decreased and so on. So, in short, all the agreements are there, but implementation has been so much more challenged because of changing domestic politi politics in our part of the world. So, you can see US, for instance, as one, if you will, in this context, an extreme. But you can also see some hope in the community of the duck France has stepped forward uh, and they they will increase their level of ODA uh, up to 20 2022 they want to reach 0 0.55 uh, from 0 0.35 today and that's not only money it's a signal of we take development uh, very seriously and we want to be a global citizen in doing this so there is, there is this moving map, if you will, uh, where some hope is also part of my, my daily life. But 
but populist self-interests uh, are much more the drivers uh, behind development cooperation than they were some years ago. And what do you see, how can we combat that? Do you see any solutions and any way forward in addressing these issues? Well, I, I, I think what we need to do is to, uh, you know, really continue to work on the SDGs and form coalitions of the willing, those who want to work together and demonstrate in practice that it's actually a win-win-win-win-win uh, situation because I, 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 I believe that... Uh, if you're sceptical to the multilateral system working for you, uh, if a system like that can prove that it's actually efficient, then that talks, if, if you will. You can say what, what gets measured gets done, what, you know, and money talks. And if we can prove that it's actually much more effective with development solutions rather than military solutions, uh, then I think you will convince even the hardliners in that because it's a language that hardliners understand. But I also think to be a little bit more fair to, to many of the politicians that want to, to fight for this policy area, they don't have the, the compelling case. They are struggling to tell the story of that development, the way we do it, is really the solutions to problems they see. So they need, they need narratives, they need to know that there are results out there, that there is impact in what we do. So, so I think we need to come together and, and demonstrate in action and, and also uh, showcase uh, more of, the, of that things has improved. I mean, how many people think about that 50 years ago when my network, the DAC, was, was you know, originated... It, it was because some, some countries could afford to be donors and they came together and they wanted to exchange and they wanted you know, rules around what they did. At that point of time, 50 years ago, the world had 3.5 billion people and 2 billion of them were living in poverty. Today, 50 years later, there are 7 billion people on, on, on the globe and around about 10% is in, you know, living in extreme poverty. How many people think about uh, the improvements we've done? We have eradicated almost HIV and AIDS, polio, child mortality. There are so many things that we have done when we have come together. Uh, and we need to continue to talk about those long-term investments we've done. It's also the case we need to realize that where we have to focus the development cooperation for people living in poverty. There are pockets in, in middle-income countries, absolutely, but the threat... The challenge uh, going forward is countries in conflict and in fragility. 80% of the poor people in some years from now is going to live there. So we also need to focus the coalition of the willing around really what's core to our mandate. And, and that is leaving no one behind and fighting for, for, for people in poverty. And I think we need to be focused. We need to, to measure what we do not in bureaucratic frameworks but and we need to uh, if you will tell the stories uh, with with the facts and and good narratives to to really showcase that this works thank you you also mentioned the other day when we met that uh, tosti is a new way of measuring mm. development cooperation can you tell us a little bit more about that 
Yes, TOSTI is uh, an acronym for trying to put a measurement in place to measure all financial flows uh, in development cooperation. Today we are measuring what you know ODA, the, the development assistance, uh, public money. But the belief uh, underneath TOSTI is that if we start to put a measurement in place, which will also measure financial flows from the private sector public money that stimulates investments uh, together with private sector. Uh, if we start to measure not only what, what countries provide, but what the partner country actually get. So from two perspectives, measure the flows uh, between, if you will, to partners or in the old way of talking donor recipient. The belief is that we will incentivize uh, public action uh, as a catalyst to make more money work for development because it's a tool beside or in parallel with ODA around which uh, governments can get visibility and be compared Uh, with other governments and you know when you benchmark when you compare when you put index in place there is a competition in that and it actually works so we need a measurement which does more to this development financing uh, need that we have than what ODA will deliver Uh, and that's the reason for for putting TOSTI in place Mm -hmm. Do you see any risks and uh, do you see what type of effects do you see for a human rights organization like RWI? I I don't necessarily see threats for you uh, from a finance point of view. Uh, I I really think, I mean, uh, the budget that that you have is is not the biggest of the investments we do. Uh, you're not going to suffer from that, I think, if you ask me. You, you might suffer from, from ideo- ideology uh, because human rights is sometimes very much within the SDGs framework and sometimes it's not. So I, I, I think that's a bigger threat. Uh, I also think that the aim of, of putting TOSTI uh, in, in parallel with ODA is to grow the overall amount of money, grow the pie uh, for development, not to shy away from ODA and replace it with, with other you know, tools that governments can, can do and shy away from ODA. That's not the reason, but I say that for a reason, because some civil society organizations and some partner countries, they think that uh, this is a way to crowd in private sector and, and you know, shy away from ODA commitments and do TOSTI or other things instead. Uh, And they have reason to believe that right now because we haven't proven yet uh, in the figures that we will grow the pie. There is no proof of that yet, but but the plan and the vision and everything we work for is to do that. Uh, But, you know, the proof is in the pudding, the proof is in the action. So, Civil society need to, you know, stay engaged, uh, look into what we're doing, uh, talk about uh, the, the opportunities and risks so that you keep us accountable in what we do uh, towards what we have said this, you know, that this is about. And coming into civil society, um, there is a proposal now that 
civil society will be represented at OECD DAC. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Mm. Uh, civil society has for long, for a long time tried to get a, a, a predictable uh, in com- communication and to be included uh, to influence decision making uh, in the OECD DAC. And we have uh, discussed for a year, uh, you know, the ways to do that. And I'm pleased to say, I think uh, I think Sweden has played a, a, a very important role in that. We have secondments at the the OECD to help us to do this now. What we have put in place, and we will decide on, and I hope that we will decide on this now, the the 10th of July, uh, it's very close to a decision, is uh, a framework for for a predictable uh, engagement uh, between civil society and and the OECD. And in short, we will meet twice every year to discuss the overall development agenda, to kind of inform each other. Uh, you know what are the challenges that we see from each side, and how how what do we need to know about each other's uh, communities, if you will, uh, to 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 agree on an agenda uh, around which civil society wants to influence the OECD, and the the civil society will self-organize uh, who will come to the meetings, but they will also have an observer. Uh, Uh, at the high-level meeting and senior-level meetings, which is very new, they haven't been able to be in the room, but now they will be, and they are—they cannot vote, but they can talk. Uh, and it's also the fact that we have a predictable procedure in place before the big meeting. So you know, papers will be sent out. There will be a meeting three weeks before. So a predictable process for influencing uh, the OECD DAC, but also you know, a predictable process to have a conversation on the issues that we actually are working together with, uh, because we we have common goals, but we have different roles. Uh, So so I'm really looking forward to this, I must say, because I I think it's going to set, you know, an example of how we can predictably, regularly uh, engage with other uh, groups that are not DAC members, but very important to us uh, in the new context of decision making where we need to, l- to listen to many more communities than, than you know, ourselves and our own. Okay. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you, thank you, Most thank you for asking. Thank you for that. <laughs>